0: This podcast is part of the Sport Social Podcast Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to a Why Can't We podcast called This Sport podcast. My name is Peter Harding and I'm Sean Morrow. Each month we'll bring you up to date with disability sports stories from around the world. We'll also be joined by a few people involved in disability sports. Why Can't We has been running since 2012 after I saw the Paralympics in London. After attending as a spectator I wondered why we don't see coverage of disability sports on a regular basis. Disability sports happen all the time not just every four years. So I started the campaign to help raise awareness of disability sports and the campaign has grown from there. These podcasts are made to help you keep up to date with para sports for relief athletes to sports fans.
0: Or if this is the first time you're hearing about disability sport, please follow on Why Can't We social media or visit whycountwe.co.uk and make sure you subscribe to this podcast. The campaign
1: can't carry on without your support. So join us each month for an update on this sport pod. As with every podcast, we aim to keep you up to date with key events in disability sports. So here is a quick update of the past month. Following the interview with powerlifters Mark Swan and Louise Sugden... They both went on to win medals with Mark winning gold and Louise winning silver in the Powerlifting World Cup in Manchester. There were also medals for Mickey Yule, Liam McGarry, Zoe Newsom, Olivia Broom, Charlotte McGuinness, Kimberly Dean, and three gold medals in the juniors. Well done to everyone involved. The SLC Arena Games, powered by Zwift, hosted the Power Triathlon in London. The races consisted of a 300 metre swim, 10 kilometre bike and 2 kilometre run and went across several triathlon categories. George Peasgood took the men's title in the PTS5 division and Claire Cashmore claimed the gold medal in the women's PTS5 category. Sheffield hosted their season opener for the World Series 2021 with Ponsford International Swimming Centre welcoming 92 athletes from 21 countries. On day one, S12 athlete Stephen Clegg broke a British record in the men's 100 meters freestyle and meeting the qualifying standard for the Paralympic Games in Tokyo. He then went on to break a world record as well. Tully Kearney also looks good for British Paralympic selection after surpassing the 100 meter freestyle qualification standard. Others to achieve the qualifying standards were Tony Shaw, Louise Fitz, Scott Quinn, Rhys Dunn, Louis Lawler and Jordan Catchpole. A big story from the four-day event was Hannah Russell making a return and putting herself in contention for a third Paralympics after a short term away from the sport. The team for the Games is not due to be finalised until July, with the Paralympics starting on the 24th of August. Make sure you stay up to date by subscribing to these podcasts, keeping across Why Can't We social media, and check out the news page on whycan'twe.co.uk. Hello and welcome to This Sport Pod with me, Peter Harding, and today I'm joined by a very special guest. It is the UK team captain for the Invictus Games, Rachel Williamson. Hello, Rachel.
0: Hi, Peter. How are you doing?
1: Yeah, I'm good, thank you. How are you?
0: Yeah, good. It's um, I'm glad the sun is out because it actually gives you a bit more motivation in life, to be honest. So yeah, all well my end.
1: Good. That's good to hear. So obviously, we're going to be talking about the Invictus Games this week and... The Invictus Games, unfortunately, was cancelled due to COVID, as many things have been with the COVID pandemic, cutting all sports out, as far as I can tell, especially disability sports. And so in honour of the Invictus Games being cancelled this time, we're doing this podcast to keep you up to date with Rachel's story, the Invictus Games, and just keeping the conversation going. And because disability sports doesn't stop just because of a pandemic. So Rachel, do you want to tell us about your own life and how you first got involved in sport?
0: Yeah sure so when I was born I was premature and that was the only reason that I got into sport because I was told I had to build on coordination breathing techniques and I was introduced to swimming to make a start and learn how to you know create those patterns and to build that strength up and a few years I think by the time I was six seven I was told you know let's go to the local swimming pool let's just see how you get on um, let's build you up and we'll just go from there as long as you enjoy it and um, that's exactly what I did I found out I was quite natural because I've always worked on my coordination and breathing and I was literally like a fish to water it um, didn't take long before I really enjoyed it got into it and straight away by the time I was 13 I believe I was um Already at national standard. I just sort of picked it up so quickly from other people. And that was sort of how I really started to just joy sport. And one thing that I, I probably took advantage of is, is that if I do sport, I can miss lessons at school. You know, there was always like something I had to attend. And for me, I was not literate at all. I just thought if I could do sport at the time, I can get out of uh, lessons.
1: There you go. advice to anyone that's uh, maybe not enjoying school and wants to get out of it. You can just take out sport and try and do that instead. Uh, and obviously at the age of seven, I know you were thinking, right, this is an opportunity for me to go down the swimming route. And you wanted to try and reach the Beijing, um, Olympics as an Olympic athlete. you were obviously very good at swimming as, as you've said, and you've, you rightly so. Where do you want to go with that swimming career? Did you want to reach that Olympic standard and did you want to sort of break world records? Is that something you were aiming for?
0: Uh, for me, it was definitely the Olympics. All my friends were either getting close to Team GB or were on Team GB at the time. And from the ages of 7 to 17, I was um, national standard pretty much every year. And it got to the point where at the age of 17, I I think I was 17. I went to national qualifications, went to the competition at Sheffield. And it was also the Commonwealth Trials to actually try and get a place on Team Juby to go to the Commonwealth trials, to then hopefully go to the Beijing Olympics. And that's all I had my mind set on for like the previous few years, because I just saw everybody I knew get into that position or that I've raced against. For example, Rebecca Adlington. You know, we trained every now and again and we'd compete all the time. And so it was definitely a high mentality. I wanted to be that Olympic superstar and win everything. It was all about podiums, medals and glory.
1: Yeah, uh, well, fair enough. And that's amazing. I didn't know you actually trained with Rebecca Adlington. So that's really interesting to hear. What mindset do you have to have to become an Olympic athlete? And what mindset do you have to have to then take on these incredible challenges of aiming for something like the Olympics?
0: Um, For me, it was a very committed mindset. I knew what I wanted and I did everything in my power to do it. So even training, I was training like... 12 times a week or something and each session was two and a half hours and that'd be before school getting up at half three in the morning and it takes on your family because they have to drive you everywhere. I had a brother and sister that weren't really into sport and so it kind of um, was me pushing everybody else saying look this is what I want we all need to take our part but um, it was I never really saw the downside to it. I was so focused on the positive aspects and how far I could go and what it's like to, you know, be recognized in a local newspaper. It was just glory all the time for me. And yeah. I guess every time I had a sort of negative side or if someone would beat me in a race, I'll take it so personally because I wanted it so much more and you yeah. secretly hate all of them and you try and sort of build on top of that. But I think back in those days, like we're talking about early 2000s, sort of early to mid 2000s. And there just wasn't much sort of psychology aspect to sport available until nowadays. So for me, it was just, I've got to go training. I've got to please my parents, please my family, all this dedication they've put into it. And yeah, it was just, if it wasn't positive, I wasn't interested pretty much back then.
1: Yeah, and I suppose- pleasing your parents pleasing your family but also pleasing yourself at the end of the day because you know you can only push yourself as hard as you can push yourself and so i can imagine that's a big challenge to think right this is what i'm aiming for and can i achieve it so amazing work and and all credit to you you then aimed to try and get to the commonwealth and you said that you, you fell short of that target of trying to get to beijing do you want to talk us through that
0: yeah, sure. So at the at that national competition I was on about, and it was coincidentally the Commonwealth Trials, I managed to get into two back-to-back finals for the 200 freestyle and 200 individual medley. And you pretty much had to be in the top three positions to get your place onto potentially Team GB. And then from there, you can go up a level in training and you know, start training sort of G B style and picking it up once more to get to the Olympics. But for me, I remember this race so clearly and I could still smell the chlorine, every aspect to it. And the first race, I it was all fine. I think I was about seventh or about seventh going into the final. So it was um very close still because in swimming it's every mm. tenth of a second yeah. can make such a difference. And that was absolutely fine and then i believe i did a 200 individual medley and which is uh one length of each stroke and i remember diving in doing everything and turning as fast as i possibly could and pushing off as and kicking as hard as i could and you get to the end and you believe you're in for a shot you know you're in that sort of oh my god this is happening until everybody hits the wall at the same time and I think I came sixth overall by like tenths of a second, literally nothing. And I didn't make that top three. So for me, that was it. You know, it only happens every few years. And Olympics are obviously only every four years. And I was at the age where you either make it to Team GB, at sort of 16, 17 years old, Mm -hmm. or you're starting to get too old to do that side of it. And you have to go into like masters and everything which I wasn't interested because in my mind, it was just old people and sort of gone past your sort of uh, elite time. Yeah. And and that was it. I think I carried on believing it was all just going to be fine. I'll just keep swimming, nothing about it. And then a few months later, I just thought, you know what? I'm just not enjoying it anymore. If I'm at my best now, I probably would either start getting less interested, less happy about it or, I'll just grow up and just want to sort of socialise for once because swimming did take over my life and that was all I ever did. But that sure. was it. It was just such a crush of a dream. But not believing it, I sort of was so in denial and didn't make a big deal out of it. And I just thought, you know what, I'll just stop now and try and work out what I want to do as a in the future as a career. Cause in my mm-hmm. mind, for 10 years I just wanted to be this Olympic swimmer and that's all I ever had my eyes set on.
1: Yeah. I mean, that must have been quite a hard thing to accept. How did you cope with that?
0: Um, I think I just kept it hidden for so long and I just had this sort of brave face, you know, I didn't make anything out of it. And I just thought, you know what, we'll just, you know, yeah, that's fine. We'll stop swimming. It means my parents don't have to drive like mm. six hours a day or something for training and they can get back to enjoying their careers and their life and I- see my family a lot more so I just kept it hidden I just ignored it and that was it I just didn't dare open that sort of seal again and sort of go back into how it used to be I just went on with life.
1: So you then realised that possibly you want to get involved with the RAF how did that come about did you go to job recruitment and think this is the one for me or was it someone else that inspired you to get involved with the RAF how did that actually come about?
0: So my sister was in the Royal Navy whilst I was doing all this. And I thought, you know, that'd be great. It's like being on a fun ferry around the holiday and you get free trips everywhere. That's all I ever thought about it. None of the actual, you know, military weapon firing sort of side of it. And I was looking at careers. I went to a college and did a public service course, which is like, um, you look at all the types of uh, emergency services, the military, complete variety. And again, that's what my sister did. I just thought I'll just do what she did. You know that'd be fun. And so yes. it's nothing I ever thought about before. But I just, um, I just sort of thought, well, might as well look into it, see what it has. And I found I found a trade called um, physical training instructor, so PTI. And yeah. When I looked into all three services, the Navy, the Army and, and the Royal Air Force, I realised the Navy and Army, you have to be a different trade first and it's classed as like a secondary trade where the army, right, okay. you can actually join up straight away as a PTI and, you know, you basically just, well, what I thought was just play sport all the time and I just thought, well, that'd be fun, you know, getting paid to play sport um, until I realised there's a word instructor on it and I sort of thought, well... Yeah. <laughs> I've actually got to instruct people, which um, (laughs) I just thought, well, I'll just learn as I go along. If I don't like it, I'll just leave. You know, it's I was so sort of blasé about it all and thought it was just like a summer camp and you could just go and um, see what's happening, go back home at a later date. And that was the only reason why I joined the REF was because I can go straight in as a PTI rather than doing a different trade first that I had no interest in and then use it as a secondary trade. So um, yeah. Yeah, and that was back in 2007 that I joined the military. So literally did school straight to college, straight into the RAF. So there was no sort of gaps or anything.
1: So was there a transition at all in mentality from being involved with swimming to suddenly entering into the RAF? And obviously you then had to become a leader and involved in instructing. So again, was that a new challenge that you had to try and learn and teach yourself or was it something that came quite naturally to you?
0: Yeah, I think... Um, By the time I finished basic training, you know, again, I just saw that as like a summer camp because it was nine weeks long, which thinking about it isn't that long, you know, it's Mm -hmm. to be a sort of military trained person. And um, then I went to trade training, which is where I learned specifically what a PTI does and how to instruct and how to play different, have a variety of sports. And they knew on a bit of paper when I applied But I had this swimming history, but I never actually told them how good of a swimmer I was. I just said, yeah, I'm just, I'm capable to swim or something. So it wasn't, yeah, I didn't sort of ever tell anybody, you know, this is my standard because I think in my mind. Was there a reason for that? I think I just didn't want to be that person that would show off. I didn't want to go, oh, look at me, you know, I haven't done it before, but I've just picked it up, you know, when actually I've had 10 years of national standard and, yeah. team GB so it was um modesty <laughs> yeah completely I just had that sort of opinion where I didn't want to be um known as this person that does this sport I wanted to actually try this career and see if I could do it yeah, from scratch yeah. and because it, it was training I and it was really hard because you actually have to be a good runner where for me I can swim but I can't run I don't have the lungs I hate doing it It's outside and cold. I'd rather be in a nice heated pool inside in like a big jacuzzi type thing. (laughs) But um, yeah, I learned how I was rubbish at running. And I think the mentality from my swimming past, I just kept that to one side. I just had to be this new person and try this new career out. And um, that's exactly what I aimed to do.
1: And how was the training for you? Obviously, you said about how you don't like to do the running And I'm sure that was quite difficult for you, but you've overcome it. So congratulations on that. But how did you find the training? Was it something that was quite easy or did you struggle mentally? And how did you overcome all the challenges?
0: Uh, Yeah, I believe I learned about myself and I still hate running now. So that's never changed. And um, I actually (laughs) got to about two thirds of the way through the actual course and I remember it was like weight training phase. And I thought, that's great. You know, no cardio. You just lie there and lift a weight. That's perfect. And um, it was unfortunate during that time, I actually became ill and had, um, I believe like a heart infection or something to do with that. And they said, oh yeah, we'll just um, take you off for a couple of days, you know, recover, see the doc, get assessed mm-hmm. and come back and we'll catch you up. And it wasn't until then that I realized this might be more serious than I was trying to put on. Maybe I could blame Mm -hmm. that. I don't like running on this sort of illness. And it wasn't until it took longer than expected to recover. And I actually got taken out of training and onto like a training flights where they just hold on, hold on to you, you attend whatever appointments you need to do. And we'll look at getting you back on a later training course to actually pick up where you were and finish the course.
1: But
0: for me, it was, I think I was on holding for about a year and a half in the end, which considering I expected it to be one week, a couple of days, yeah, just took a long time to recover. I found any exercise hard, I'd have like high heart rate, couldn't breathe properly. When it was so surreal because I was so used to holding my breath swimming and I could do like a length and a half, holding my breath underwater. It was so unusual and I just wasn't used to sort of being this ill person I was always yeah. the one who never got ill and I think it didn't really bring back any sort of um, memories of swimming at the time I just believed yep yeah, it's a nice getting paid I'm not doing much And I looked at other trains and at first I wasn't really sure and I thought I could just go back to training but when I was told that I couldn't go back in a PTI course I had to actually um, start from day one of trade training again when I was already two-thirds of the way trained. They said um, I either had to go back through selection for PTI, wait a very long time for the next course coming through because they only had mm-hmm. maybe two a year, um, or look at other trades. And at the time, I just thought, why am I doing um, PTI training when actually I could just do another sport and still – so i do another trade but still play sport? And in my mind, that never yeah. occurred to me before I started looking at PTI in the first place. But you don't have to do one trade to play sport; you can do anything you want.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah.
0: So, um, so yeah, that's exactly what I did. I um, decided to go for medic, an REF medic, purely because I was in the med centre for half for a year and a half. So I thought, oh, I've seen them do their stuff. You know, I bet I could do that. So there was never. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like a dream to do it I never had much interest I just thought oh I've been in that scenery you know I'm sure I can take
1: yeah you know How can I help out now
0: yeah I'm sure I can take someone's pulse you know that's about it and um <laughs> yeah, exactly what I did so my sort of second dream after being an Olympian to be a PTI I stopped and went on to this third thing which was uh, becoming a medic My name's Grace, and I'm a Why Can't We journalist. You can read some of my articles over at whycan'twe.co.uk.
1: So just to recap, I've been talking to Rachel Williamson, who's the UK captain for the Invictus Games, and she's been talking about how she's had to transition from being a potential swimming Olympic hopeful to then transition to the RAF, and she's then been going for her PT training and again, she's potentially facing another transition. Now, I know a lot of people who might be listening to this podcast might have had a knockback in their lives, whether it's a big one or a small one, but it's something meant to be able to overcome. Rachel, how did you overcome this? And what message did you give to other people?
0: Um, for me, I found that i am actually got a stronger mindset to take for action, to change, plan when something goes badly wrong. And... There's always something else you can do just because you're not doing that dream that you started. If you just take a step back, breathe, mm-hmm. and just think about what you have interest in, what you can do, what's available to you. And for me, that's exactly what I did. I just thought, well, in my mind, I failed at being a PTI and I blamed myself. And then I failed at being, um, you know, this Olympian and. I just thought, well, if I've done it a few times already, I must have that strong enough mindset to overcome it and try again, something new. And I've always got that mindset where actually if you try anything, whether you have that interest or not, you can always stop it. Or you could always say, no, this is not for me. Let's go and try something Mm -hmm. else. And yeah, I think I've just built on that sort of um, mindset where I know I can overcome it. I know it's going to be absolutely rubbish and going to feel terrible And dreams are being crushed when actually try and find some similarity between what you're doing, what you was doing and what you're looking at doing and just keep going. You know, life doesn't stop. You don't stop. You just have to sort of accept there is change. But what you're going to do might actually be better for you. You just don't know it till you try.
1: Yeah, that's a great message. So you're now trained up as a medic. And I'm sure you've probably picked up lots of skills that you probably didn't even think you'd ever have. Do you want to tell us about your time as a medic and some of the experiences that you had because I'm sure there were plenty and some great stories as well.:
0: So for me, as soon as I was um, finished my medic training and learned you know all the stuff that I never thought I'd ever learn in my life and I was posted to R.E.F. Waddington, which is an R.E.F. based near Lincoln. And that was where I sort of learned um, all the simple things, you know, how to sort of talk to a patient, how to treat them if I can or to refer them to the doctor or the nurse or whoever needs you. And that was probably my best time, one of the best times. I actually enjoyed everything about my job and my career and the people that I work for. And once I... I was, I, I was at Waddington for about three years before I found out I was going to be deployed overseas. So I went to the Falkland Islands down the wow. South Atlantic for four months. It was uh, 2013. And I loved it. It was li- in my mind, it was butlins for the military on the other mm-hmm. side of the world. So I, I just see the fun in everything, I believe. So I had a great time. I did um, aeromed out there, which is an aeromedical evacuation. So if there's any military personnel that's ill or needs to go back to the UK for treatment, then I could go on a flight, make sure they're safe during that flight and assess them and then um, take them back to the UK and then fly back to the Falklands. And I also did ground handling. So any sort of uh, civilians or military personnel coming in, who may have been at risk, we could just escort them to the med centre, get them checked before they go home or to their job back on the base. And that purely was an amazing place to go to. I've never been on a helicopter before, and I got to go to different islands out there. I saw sea lions and elephant seals. I didn't even know these animals existed, you know, (laughs) or even seen a penguin, you know, within an arm's distance. It was just... um, so surreal but i loved every second of it four months does sound like a long time but actually if you think of it as 16 weeks it really doesn't fly by as long as you keep yourself busy and so i did a lot of stuff in the gym to keep busy they did have a swimming pool as well so it literally was an amazing time out there and then i came back it was just before christmas 2013 and I was back at Waddington for a few weeks before I found out I was posted. So I went to RVF Wittering, and that was my last base in the end before I left the military. But during that whole entire time, I did um, naturally pick up RVF Sport whilst I was a medic because, again, I just thought, oh, I could have time off work, you know, travel to nice places. <laughs> and I was, again, very lucky. I did try and do RVF Swimming because I thought, well – done a bit of swimming in my past you know that'll be fun yeah but until you realize you're not as quick as you used to be you're a bit older now you've got um more of a open mind to how you know swimming actually is when you're not a teenager and just doing it because you have this dream for this I just um I saw it as oh you get nice kit you can go to nice places (laughs) And I did. I went abroad. I did some competitions abroad with the military and swimming camps in Cyprus. And then it only lasted about a year and a half, two years, because I realized chlorine does stay on you. It does smell. And I thought, you know what, well, that's when I was showing you can do rugby. I've got the shoulders of a mm. swimmer. I'll probably do a mean tackle when I play rugby. And that's exactly how I got into that rugby aspect, was um, just being yeah. introduced from one sport to the other. And then I represented the RBF playing rugby for another two, three years. Hmm. And that was pretty much my um, sort of military career, just playing sport, having fun, yeah. and, uh, working in a medical centre, seeing patients.
1: Amazing. Now, what about the team around you? When you've been involved in swimming, it's an individual sport and it's not really a team sport as such. But in the army, it's quite different. And you're surrounded by fellow service men and women. Did you feel like you got a really good support? And was there anyone, anyone in particular who supported you at all?
0: Uh, yeah, it was, um, it was a completely different, it was similar mindset to playing sport because you are a team. You have to get on with each other because you're all away from home. You might not be seeing, mm. some people don't see their family for, Maybe once a year because they just, their family live abroad or something. And for me, that's when I learned the word banter and realized you <laughs> can uh, say something ridiculous and get away with it. And it was, yeah, I think it really shaped me up to uh, growing up and actually um, learning about life and about friendships and, and everything else that comes with it. And it's quite, it can be quite hard to keep in relationships and friends purely because they could be posted again to somewhere else, the other side of the world or to another part of the UK. Yeah. And you have to, if, they, if you know they're like a best friend or someone that you're going to keep in touch with, you know you're going to stay together and keep chatting even though you can't see each other. But sometimes you do, yeah. someone does leave you or you know a colleague and you think, yeah, I'm glad with the break now. <laughs> it, was, uh, it can <laughs> be at <laughs> times because uh, you're working so closely to each other. It's almost like um, Marmite, you either get on really well or you're purely just colleagues and you're never going to be friends. And um, yeah, it was like a great time. Like I served 10 and a half years and still looking back, I don't even feel old enough to say I've done that. It's um, just such (laughs) a surreal time of my life. But I've definitely got some best friends that I've kept in touch even today. And that's... Yeah, it's like a very long time, but um you know you've actually you know what you've both been through and all the you know the bits that might feel rubbish at the time in the military but you can just, you know, keep your heads up high and uh look in different ways, but um yeah, it's definitely uh, shaped me as who I am today.
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. And so let's go back to your sporting prowess. Obviously you then started doing rugby and you then sustained an injury uh, during training. Do you want to talk us through that?
0: Yeah, sure. So in, so I was playing rugby uh, for about sort of two years roughly. And in 2014, I was at a training camp at R.E.F. Holton, which is the basic training site for any R.E.F. member. And it was You know, I've played rugby for like a good year before that. I knew sort of how to play now. And when we were training, I was a loose head prop. That was my position. I was told, you know, this is what you need to go for. You know, you'll be great. And I can't remember exactly, but I believe I went to tackle someone, try and rip the ball out of their arms and bent my right thumb back or sprained it in such a way it hurt, but I sort of thought, oh, it's just a niggle, you know, I'll just carry on and uh, and yeah. have this sort of hard aspect about me and not worry about, you know, a digit. And um, at the time I, I remember seeing a physio, we had a team physio and they just said, oh yeah, we'll just uh, tape it up because we had a game the next day. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had to be that first select for that position. That was just, you know, for me, it was just a winning mindset. And so I thought, yep, this is not going to take me from my shot to get another cap for my uh, military sporting career. And um, the next day we played a game Mm -hmm. and I sort of knew that my hand was not great because it was still sore. Obviously, it swelled and it was bruising and I had to lift my second row up in the air in line outs. And I managed to do that for most of the game until I sort of felt, yeah, right. my hand's getting a bit weaker now. I'm losing that grip to actually tackle and hold on to the other teammates when we're uh, pushing and everything. And it was... The so your function
1: was still there and still working okay?
0: Yeah, so I still had um, all my things working, the thumb. It was great sort of moving across, but I couldn't bend it very well just because it was swollen. So it was, it was literally right. just a sprained thumb. That's all it was. And yeah. I went no. back. Fortunately, I work in a med center. So I knew all the doctors and I just said, look, can you just take a look? see yeah. what, what, what should I do? And, um, and that's even worse when you're a medic and you're injured because you believe you can just sort yourself out, carry on patched up. And, you know, the world is right again. But, um, yeah. for me, I just thought, yeah. well, something doesn't feel right, but I'm not quite sure, but I can keep doing what I'm doing. You know, you're not taking any what of this away from me. And, um, Went for a scan, had an x ray. They sort of said, um, Yes, they've sort of stretched a few ligaments. It's not too much. It was swell. And we'll just have a couple of physio sessions just to try and get that um, sort of flexion in my thumb again and try and get it more mobile. Mm -hmm. And it seemed fine at first. You know, I just thought, Well, it's been, you know, a month now. Yes, I can't use it great, but I can still do my job and everything. And then fast forward, it was. About probably about a year later, and I still had no function of my thumb, and I could feel it was definitely worse. I was starting to get this sort of tremor that was coming with it, and my fingers were starting to weaken, and I sort of just didn't have that grip anymore in my hand. And it was it was then when I realised I actually can't do my job 100% anymore because I can't effectively do CPR if I ever had to do it, or pick up a patient from the floor. holding my own kit if it's a you know someone that's quite heavy or a stretcher that you need two hands for and that was the realization that actually it has got worse over time and it is starting to affect everything I do so even tying shoelaces, you try and use like you know your outside fingers rather than trying to pinch or anything it was just getting a bit difficult and that was when I believe it was I can't remember what year, but not long after. And uh, I had to go for multiple assessments every six years just to check that I am fit for my trade, that I can um, continue my job and maybe just have a limitation against my record just say, yep, you can do it, but just anything two handed or really heavy, you know, that's something that I would have to get um, someone else to actually assist with. And um, yeah, it wasn't long after I had to go for a medical board and i think that was december 2016 I guess yeah and i
1: think 17, 17,
0: 17, 17 quite it feels it feels like such a long time ago from now but it really isn't <laughs> and um yeah that was the time where i had to go for a final assessment to say look this is what's going to go on this is how your career is going to continue what you can do what you can't do mm. and um and I was fairly relaxed about it. I thought, yeah, that's fine. You know, they'll just say, yes, it's um, unfortunate. You know, you've sprained your thumb. It's not recovered. You can keep doing your job in certain aspects. Yeah. And it was then I actually found out from this doctor that that was the end of my military career. That was me getting medically discharged from the service. You would no longer do your job. And that is it. And it was such wow. a bombshell. I just thought, how can I not do yeah. my job? it's a thumb you know that's I can still walk you know I have all my limbs and um, yeah yeah, and that was the shocking side that I found out yep it's affected my um, career and that was the end of me feeling like a failure for like number three or four and I had to now think what do I do next I just do not know what to do just because of a silly sprain that actually got worse and was affecting my hand that in the military everyone needs to be able to um, hold a weapon or do the basics like CPR and all that sort of stuff and it's actually yeah. not that effective if you only have function in one hand and not much in the other and yeah. that was the reason that I could no longer be in the military.
1: Wow uh, and so now what function do you have at the moment in your, in your arm?
0: Uh, so now it's um, pretty much up to the shoulder now so every six months to a year, it sort of progressed and it went from hand to wrist, wrist to elbow, elbow to shoulder. And so my hand I can't use it at all. I could probably um shake my arm for try and move it and it would sort of tremor itself, but I have no um sort of control or function at all, but I can use it as a proper arm. And annoyingly I was right-handed. So I've had to learn to do everything left-handed and one arm. No
1: to actually get through life, yeah. Wow, wow. I think that's a, a huge challenge. That you, you know, so many things to overcome there. And again, you've been knocked back, and again, you've had to overcome something. Is there was there a family support network? or Was there someone or a group of people who helped get you through this? Because I can imagine that was a a huge blow and something that was very difficult to overcome.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. I um, I had support, and I realised I had to be, I had to really sort of grow up now and say, actually, you're you are an adult. You have control of your life. Start saying yes to everything you're being offered. And so I was still getting treated at Headley Court, which is the Defence Military Rehab Centre down in uh, Surrey, and that was when I saw also saw people that actually they're worse than me. And they're coping absolutely yeah. fine. How can me with a dodgy thumb, you know, can't get through life? And so I started talking to my family and a couple of close friends that truly knew how I felt. And I also had a welfare officer on my station at Wittering at the time who um, just told me look, this is rubbish. This is, it's not what you planned, but life does have through sort of curveballs and, you may not be ready. You may feel absolutely rubbish now, but one day you will realise this is this was the best for you, best for your patients and your career, and you can move forward in the real world being a civvy Because mm-hmm. I only had about a year and a half, two years left to go anyway before my end of military contract, unless right. I um, got promoted or signed on for longer, and. So I sort of knew this was going to happen whether I liked it or not now yeah. or in a year and a half's yeah. time. And so yeah, I just had to be open and honest, you know, any courses I could do, anything that would help. Um and I did make friends with a couple of people who were sort of one armed or amputees and started asking questions and just figuring out, you know, I can't turn back, you know, you can't turn back time. This is what's happening sort of get over it and get on with life, you know, start trying to find things that interest you, but you can still keep Mm -hmm. going because there are people out there worse than you. And that's, and I'm lucky. I've always had that mindset from that Olympic failure, PTI failure. Now I'm a medic failure. And I've always known I can bounce back because I've done it so many times, but I've never really um, reflected on anything. And I just thought, well, I'll just do what I can attend courses, learn how to write a CV so I never had one before. And right, how well. yeah, I think you just have to be open and honest sometimes, even though it's scary, horrible, you hate everybody. But it has to be done either now or later. So get it over with now, and you can just move on in life.
1: My name is Sam Harris, and I'm a journalist for Why Can't We? Read my articles at whycan'twe.toe.ut. Okay, so I've got a couple of questions for you. When you were recovering from your injury, how much prior knowledge did you have of the Paralympics and the Invictus Games? Because I imagine you probably knew about them. But was that something that you'd thought about facing and going to compete at the Olympic, uh, the Paralympics or the Invictus Games? Or is this a new venture for you again? And what did you learn en route to discovering more about disability sports, I guess?
0: Um, I really knew nothing apart from the typical, you know, Paralympics and thinking, oh, you know, it's great to watch, but never in my life looked at it, knew about it, didn't know where to go for it because I never saw myself being in that position where this is something that could, you know, Mm -hmm. beat you one day. I just um, supported others doing it, thinking, you know, they must have been born with something or had some terrible accident. And I think ever since injured, it really has opened my eyes completely. And I've got this um, new onset, you know, going forward, where actually they are amazing people, you know, just because they have this disability or this um, something that's affected them in their life, they are still... Mm -hmm incredible athletes and they still can do everything within their ability at you know the highest of standards and for me I never even looked at going to the Paralympics myself just because I never thought that I would ever I would ever be in that position Mm -hmm. and fortunate for me I found um, the Invictus Games which is the military almost version of the Olympics, but it's mainly for wounded, injured and sick personnel. That was the idea from Prince Harry when he saw the Warrior Games, which is between all the army different services within the military um, doing a sports competition against themselves, but purely for recovery, not for glory or medals or anything like that. And he then brought it to the UK and thought, actually, this is a great idea. We can make this international to all wounded, injured and sick within the military around the world because there's so many people, especially when he was in the military, that he saw getting injured, getting, um you know, blown up in yeah. war zones. And if it wasn't for a friend introducing me the idea of Invictus, again, I would have no mindset of what disability sport is because I've never really had, I've never really opened my eyes to see people, you know, with missing limbs that are playing sport. It just never um, was something that sort of came about but I could see and yeah. it was just fortunate, yeah, that the Invictus came along and that's when I saw fellow friends thinking, you know what, there's sport out there. You don't have to have the chance. Yeah, it's not, it, it's not about glory anymore. It's all about you and your recovery and how you can overcome injuries to, you know, create adaptions within sport and just do it again to the best of your ability and actually forget about your injury for once. Just concentrate on the sport side.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and being proud of who you are, I think, as well, is quite important because it doesn't matter if you've got a disability or you don't just be the best you can be and give everything a go, I think, is a message that rings true with myself and I think it's something that I hope rings true with everyone else who might be listening to the podcast. How did you then find adapting to civilian life? You said about that you'd never had a TV before. I mean, you you didn't really or you wouldn't have thought that you'd suddenly become a civilian in this case. And so quickly, obviously a year and a half or two years before you were planning to become a civilian. How did you find the transition from being in the RAF, traveling abroad, going to these incredible places like the Falklands, and suddenly you're back in the UK in civilian life?
0: It was, it was rubbish at, at the start. You know, I remember um the week after hearing about leaving the military that um, I sort of have this resettlement era where you do all your courses, but that comes to an end and you have this um, last paid day in service it's called. And you realize actually you're not really going to get paid anymore. You know, you're not having this job anymore. You need to actually go and find an interview, find a new career. And I was sort of so in denial i just thought oh something will happen you know i won't do anything now it'll just it'll just work out it'll be fine when actually i was pretty miserable i was um i think my talent at the time was watching daytime tv and eating doritos that was <laughs> um, pretty much what i did every day because that's what made me happy you know anything to Sounds like lockdown. <laughs> yeah it, it exactly is so that sort of first few weeks in lockdown was exactly how i felt and You didn't know what to do. You didn't know where to go, what was going to be okay or not. And I did absolutely nothing. I just thought, oh, it'll be fine. You know, I'll just get on with life. And then I realized, yeah, I've been using my own savings to give myself almost like a wage every month to sort of get by in life. And that's when, you know, you get pestered by your family, you know, your mum gets involved. (laughs) And start saying, look, you actually need to figure out what you want to do and start getting interviews. Even if you don't want that job, just get some practice in. Yeah. There's me going, yeah, 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 I fully understand. You know, I will, you know, I promise. <laughs> and then you, you know, ignore everybody and don't do it for a few more weeks. And uh, your money's going down the drain. And then, yeah, I think I just, I'm lucky that I had um, sort of that, I learned how to adapt in sport from Invictus. It sort of worked at the same time that I was learning about sport, as I was learning about how to be a civvy and get through life and get a job. And they sort of helped each other really to try and build this new onset in life and how to adapt and knowing that, yeah, life might be rubbish now, but, you know, keep going and it will work out. You're getting up every day. That's a positive You know, you're feeding yourself, you're having a drink. And it sort of opened my eyes that, yeah, you can still do the basics in life just because you can't be this amazing sporting superstar. Or, you know, you might feel like a failure all the time because that's how I did. I thought that I let everybody down in my family for not getting through my military career okay. And it sort of all worked out together because every aspect of my life was learning in different ways. And that's how I carried on to
1: today yeah and you were introduced to the Invictus Games by a friend as you said earlier on and Help for Heroes have been fantastic in the support that they offered to you haven't they if anyone is listening to this podcast and wants to help Help for Heroes then please do and go to their website and offer them all the support you can give them because they are doing some fantastic work And the Invictus Games is just one of many things they support. So please do help Help for Heroes. So the Invictus Games, for you, you went out to Sydney and you came back with, I want to get this right, so I'm just going to refer to my notes quickly. Uh, You came back with two golds, three silvers and a bronze. Yes. Amazing. Uh, That was in swimming, that was in rowing as well. Yeah. How do you well, let's go through the whole journey. Talk me through the Invictus Games. What, what was it for you? Uh,
0: for me, when I was first introduced, I um, went to some sort of training camps just to see how you adapt in sport because I never even knew that you could change a row machine to one-handed. You know, you can change handles. I just thought you just couldn't ever do that. And um, yes, I went back to swimming, which um, was probably the hardest part ever <laughs> because i had to learn to swim one-armed and my mind i thought i'd go in circles or yeah. be emo and i just thought well i don't want to do it because i hate all the memories that i have with it but then i kind of do want to do it because it's um you know it's fun you have a good time and everyone's been in the military and you can have that good banter again but um yeah no it was, it was very good and i went i got selected for the actual team and even though thousands apply and they all want to be in you know all in the same position of having injuries and trying to use sport to help themselves and um yeah it was great i was selected i went to the invictus games in 2018 which was in sydney australia which again never been to australia before so that was an amazing place to actually see and the competition was in the olympic park where the olympics were so for me i thought oh yeah this is my Olympics and finally representing my country you know just because it's not Team G and Olympics it's Team UK and I'm racing against international athletes but we all have this common goal of being ex-military or still serving having an injury and using sport to empower us and to try and lift us up again and to help our own recovery journeys and so yes yeah, so I did two sports indoor rowing which was a four minute endurance race, which if anyone's been on a rower is horrendous because it feels like half an hour. And then we did the one minute sprint, which I fully enjoyed <laughs> because it, you knew it's just one minute done and dusted. <laughs> and, um, and then yeah. I, I gave swimming a go, but the hardest part was to not compare myself yeah. to my previous swimming life. My goal was to create yeah. random memories, have fun, try and smile about it. Don't critique yourself. And show yeah. my parents, because I got to take my parents with me. <laughs> that was the first time my parents have seen me swim since the Commonwealth trials, when I didn't make my dream, decided to quit, and that was it, it was swimming. And they never saw my military swimming. I just, you know, just, I didn't feel it was a very, it's, it's a very boring sport to watch sometimes, to be fair, but just going up and down in a big bath. <laughs> and so that was <laughs> the thing actually saying, Let's show my parents what I can do now, just because I've had a past. I can show them how strong I am now, how I've adapted. And little, I did not even think about medals. It was purely for me just trying to be happy, smile, and just have the best time of your life. And so when I got six medals, I just thought, this is crazy. Like I'm absolutely honoured. It was great to have them. They're actually framed up on my wall next to me so I can remind myself look how far you've come you know just because something rubbish happens in your life look where you've been and um and it was the best experience of my life I've definitely made friends for life it encouraged me to get back into sport and enjoy it just because you don't have to um be an Olympian doesn't mean you can't do it and (laughs) it was yeah it really was the best experience ever absolutely loved it
1: it just sounds incredible and again congratulations for six medals which are fantastic to have now moving forward to the hague and you became the gb captain and you're the first female gb captain as well so first we go win six medals you've recovered from all of these knockbacks you've had in your life you've yeah you've then won six medals and now you're the team gb captain the first female gb captain how did that feel? Did you get a phone call and celebrate in some way, or yeah? It, or, 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 t- talk us
0: through it. So games happen, or they were happening, sort of every two years. It always depended because um, it was it was a brand new concept, and I never thought about going to the games again. I thought, you know, what Sydney was amazing. I'm a better person out of it. I've started to gain confidence and um, not being embarrassed by having, you know, limitation and I remember speaking to um, my rowing coach at the time for Sydney saying you know it'll be great to go again but I don't want to take someone else's place if they need it more than me and she just said look Rach you've um look what you've done have you finished all your goals is there still stuff to work on you know how do you feel and I just said actually I'm not as confident as I hoped I would be. I was still a bit shy around my injury. I never really openly spoke about it too much. And um, But I said I would love that opportunity to do it again, see it in a different sort of aspect and offer advice to anybody else on the team and I could be that second time going and helping others where I was before I went to Sydney. And I remember getting – you get an email, so I got an email saying – Congratulations you've been selected for the Hague 2020 and I was like this can't be happening it's happening again I'm going again this is you know this is amazing what an opportunity and then I was um offered to the you know are you interested in being a captain or vice captain you know how do you feel about it and I just thought I'm a rubbish leader I don't even know what to do <laughs> you know I can make a joke every now and again and um, I actually went for an interview because um, they have to sort of, you know, sort of grill you and check you're okay and you can actually face everything. Right. And, um, wow. And little did I know my Sydney rowing coach is now the team manager. And so it was, and I knew everybody in that room, which was great for me because it took away your nerves. Um, and, yeah. you know, it was an advantage, really. But, um, yeah, so I had a, I think it was about a 45-minute interview, and it was on the way home. I was with my dad at the time because, um, annoyingly, I crashed my car the day before, which was not advisable. Oh, no. And um, <laughs> I was being chauffeured. And uh, I got a phone call from the manager literally about an hour after leaving um, Help for Heroes HQ at Tedworth House. And they said, Rach, um, we've had a chat and we've all decided, you know, we would like to offer you the captaincy, and I was just like, "Are you sure? Are you sure <laughs> you know?" I knew I said I'd give it a go, but I never thought I'd be selected. And they yeah. uh, just say, "Yep, yeah, it's yours if you accept." And I just thought, you know what? What an opportunity to have! And I thought, of course, I'll accept it. And so I, um, my dad knew he was next to me. I called my mum straight away, and um, she started crying. And I was just like, get over it. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it wasn't until later on that I realised I was the first female Team UK captain they've ever had, because they've all been male the previous three games. And yeah. what a statement, you know, to say you're captain a team, female is great. You know, I've never really saw gender into it before. But I just know that I'm going to go again, give it my best shot, try and lead them or advise them in the best way going for the games. And um, we will, you know, figure it out as I go along. I'll just have to ask questions and be brave and and uh, see where we get, really. But I just thought, if, if they believe in me, then I must be doing something right, that they see me in that role. And um, that's exactly what happened. So it was... Um, yeah an amazing occasion and obviously with the pandemic and the postponement we've um we should have gone was it a year ago now it would have been
1: a year ago yeah
0: and then obviously since the pandemic it got um postponed and we were like oh no we didn't know if it was going to be cancelled entirely or we were just going to say you know what we'll hope to bring it back on later in a year and yeah, yeah been crazy and then obviously beginning of this year we were told yep it's postponed a second time and we we're like oh no this is you know lockdown <laughs> and we were literally a month built be- month before going when we were told yep we couldn't train anymore and that was the games over so we've literally just been um trying to keep the team a team during lockdown and we do know that the games will be on in 2020 in april and, um, again, we can't be too confident about it. You know, we hope to go, but you just don't know what COVID is going to do and, you know, yeah. how it's going to be. And, uh, yeah, that's sort of where we are now.
1: So we're hoping, obviously, that Team UK can go to to the Hague in 2022 and Düsseldorf is also on, on the horizon as well. Is, yeah. is that something you're aiming, aiming to go to or is that going to be a clash or how are they going to do both of them? Do you know it at all?
0: Um, so the games for The Hague will definitely, you know, 2022 will be the last time they will choose a date because of Dusseldorf okay. has been decided as the next venue for 2023. They just cannot postpone it anymore. Oh. Has a bit of yeah. a knock effect. And um, for me, no, I won't be going. Um, normally, on Invictus, if you if you're on your second time, you're pretty much getting in a better place, and you're offering advice to others and you don't tend to go a third games. Um, I know when Invictus started, mm-hmm. people were, but now it's um, sort of growing in itself. People are more aware of it. You know, we um, yeah. in more social stuff and getting into media and the games are, were on TV last year, which was amazing for us, trying to get that um, sort of that spotlight on disability sports. And actually so many people are affected. And just because you see Team GB, Team UK, and the Paralympics and the Invictus, it doesn't mean that there's athletes on the other side of the world with the same injury. And you just realise others are affected in the exact same way. It's not just you, and you're the only one in the world. There's so many other people out there. And um, Invictus is like a family. You know, you make friends with um, athletes around the world, and you all support each other, whichever way is best.
1: Yeah. Yes, yeah, so true. And obviously, disability sport is something that is always ongoing. So, if you are listening to this podcast, remember you can check out whycan'twe.co.uk. Keep up to date with disability sport, it's always happening, it's never stopping. And recently, I don't know if you are still involved in touring, para swimming, at all. Are you are you across that?
0: Um, I obviously watch it um, on TV and social media, that, but I'm yeah. not personally looking at sort of Paralympics or anything. I, um, right, I've okay. had my moment, my Invictus Games was my Olympics and I was absolutely yeah. over the moon. I've um, represented yeah. my sport. I've, I've swam against international athletes but this whole journey has made me realise that um you don't have to be the best of the best to actually realise others are in a similar position but just struggling a bit. Mm-hmm. You can actually talk to them, tell them what's available, spread the word basically. Yeah. So that's more what I'm aiming to do now is uh just continuing life yeah i'll still like i still um i row at home i've got a row machine with a single handle i'll always do it for fun now but um now i've sort of learned that you don't have to do it 10 hours a day to actually prove a point you can (laughs) do it when you want and have fun with this and you know find friends in a similar way and you know edgy other on and it's um, I think that's how I see it now. I'm more open-minded and um, spread the word.
1: Exactly, and I think that's true for for a lot of people. Disability sport is something that can happen at grassroots level, or just your your home. you got your home gym there, or you've got your own rowing machine, or you've got your own treadmill. Whatever you've got, just have a go and enjoy. it. And I think that's that's a key message: is enjoy what you can do because. It doesn't matter. You don't have to be the the top Olympian. You don't have to be Rachel Williamson being the UK team captain. You can be whoever you want to be and just be proud of of that fact that you are a disability sports person, uh, whether you're the elite athlete or not. And that's a very good message I think you're sending out. Is there a support network at all for yourself and for other Invictus athletes who are hoping to possibly... Go to the first Invictus Games. Is there a good support network out for you, and has the pandemic affected that, or have you actually coached fairly well?
0: Yeah, I think everyone's story is obviously different, and how they and where they are in their recovery journey. And Help for Heroes have um, pretty much saved my life. You know, I was probably in a depressive state without realizing after I was being. Um, when I knew I was leaving the military and they've helped me from day one you know they've offered me courses that I can help to um, improve myself and join on courses where other like-minded people are also on and again I'm very fortunate they they do look after the Invictus Games for Team UK and they literally have helped me who I am today and I always try and spread the word of all the charities that have helped me and especially Help for Heroes because they are the main one. They've, um, they'll always be there. It doesn't matter. You know, you don't have to be serving or an amputee. It can be anything from, um, you know, you having a life changing injury and needing 24 hour care at home, or if you have like a mental illness or something, anything in between and, they are such an amazing charity. And obviously lockdown has affected everybody, not just, um, you know, you think you're just in like a small group at times, but actually it is worldwide. It is everybody. And we need to help out um, all those who might be struggling and make sure you keep in touch with people and even help for heroes. You know, we can't do face-to-face courses, but they still have everything online from, if you want to do a sporting activity, if you want to um you know do a bit of mindfulness it's um Mm -hmm. it's literally everything they can they can provide and i do i feel like sometimes yeah i owe my life to them because they've actually got me out of my shell and they've helped so many people around the country sort of get to where they are today and try and improve their mindset or their lifestyle and um again with sport it's anybody can have an accent at any time, you know, and you may have to to find yourself in that disability sport sort of bracket. It doesn't mean you're less of a person or less capable. You just have to find a different way of doing it. That might feel strange at first, but at the end of the day, if you've loved sport, you will find that love again. You just need to uh, be a bit patient and uh, eventually you'll get that addiction back and you'll keep going.
1: Amazing. Thank you so much for that. Is there, is there any sort of final messages or anything you would want to say to anyone that is listening to this podcast, how they can get involved with Help for Heroes or how they can support your journey or what they can do to, to keep up to date with your journey as well. Are you on social media, for example?
0: Uh yes, yeah, so I'm I do love a bit of social media and uh, <laughs> I'm very open to what I say. You know, I just find, you know, if you're true if you're true to yourself and why not share the word on what you're doing. So I am on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter is probably the one you'll see me on most. I'm slightly obsessed. <laughs> we need to uh, calm down a bit. And um, again, Help for Heroes, you can literally just Google them and find their website. And especially if you're um, serving or ex-service member and you want to you know, ask for some help, give them a go. You know, It's not for everyone, but if you don't see what they can offer and maybe try it or sign up to something, then it might just help you break out of that sort of negative time that you're in or that, you know, you may feel like you're in crisis and they can at least pinpoint you to someone else if they can't help you directly. And that's, what's great about them. There's always someone there that wants to help you, you know, that's why they've set it up. And I would say, yeah, if you're not sure about what to do or disability wise, you know, are not sure if you need equipment or anything, just, start talking to people in your, you know, your family and try and reach out to charities and you can only ask, you know, you won't get it unless you ask sometimes. And so you need to actually be brave, take that first step. Because you never know, it might be the best step that you've ever taken and you're onwards in life and you're smashing goals again.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much for this, Rachel, today. You've been amazing and it's been great to hear your story. Hopefully, we'll see you in The Hague and achieving more gold medals and being that first female UK captain.
0: Thank you. Yeah, we shall see. It's um, Give it my best shot. I'm going to have fun. And um, hopefully, again, yeah, spread the word about what we do, how strong we all are. And um, yeah, you'll see us smiling and finally get into the games because we've been waiting for this for quite a while.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. And uh, speak to you soon. Okay, thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, then don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Join us next time on Disport Pod. See you then.
0: more great shows or join the team at sport-social.co.uk.